There have been moments, years, decades of my life where walking the Christian walk has meant being an alien land, alien to the gospel. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. We come to you today from the old city of Jerusalem, from a stone room in a guest house for religious pilgrims. I'm speaking today with Stephen Bridge, who is currently the director of the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem. That is one of the possible sites of the Hill of Golgotha, as well as the Garden Tomb, the Tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A beautiful setting and run by volunteer guides. How did you first find out about this and think, I'd like to be part of that? The first time I went there was back in the 1980s when my father and mother were working at the Garden Tomb and I visited with my wife and two of my young children at that time. But in terms of this experience now, I came with my wife as a volunteer on a three-month sabbatical and that turned into a return visit and that returned into an invitation to come on staff. So that's how it happened to me. Back home, if you don't mind telling me where you're from, what are your first memories about church or belief or actually thinking there really might be something to this? I was brought up in a a Christian home, so all of my life, I can't remember a time when God and Jesus were not central to what the family talked about and our experience. My father was a Baptist minister, an evangelist, church planter, and so I grew up in a Christian household. But there were moments in my life when I had... I would say an encounter with God or God dealt with me and it took me on another step in terms of my understanding of him and that demanded a response and there have been a number of times in my life when God demanded a response. Are you comfortable sharing an experience that you attribute to being led or him being at work in your life in a way that you came to know and believe really was him? Well, my parents tell me the first time I came up with a sentence like, I want to become a Christian or I have become a Christian, uh, was when I was about 11 at a church camp. And uh, then the next year I went to a church camp and I did it all over again. And so coming from a background that talks about being born again, I guess I've been born again again a few times. Uh, But that's part of what I think is a normal journey, particularly for somebody brought up in a Christian household uh, where faith is their parents and then they grow to understand the personal implications then uh, there can be often those moments when we make another choice or another choice. Some people at some stage choose not to go on, but thank God and thank his grace, he's always pulled me through. I think a key moment was when I decided to be baptized as as an adult, as a believer, at the age of about 14 or 15. I made that personal decision, and that was a significant time for me. I think that was when I understood that there was something called discipleship, which is responding to God with a yes. And that was, baptism for me was that moment. I like that definition of discipleship. Was your path a straight path or or from there? Did you have moments of doubt along the way? You know, I still have moments of doubt in terms of, uh, you know, is this what God really wants? Why does God do this? Why does God allow that? They're big questions, and I don't think we ever come through those. Uh, In terms of personal doubt, 
uh, about my own salvation or walk with God. Um, I never turned my back on God and said, this is not for me. But I did, on, on many occasions, uh, I'm afraid to say, fall short of what I would expect of myself, never mind what God would expect of me. And so times of repentance, times of coming to terms with personal failure, falling short, uh, there have been many of those times. I think the thing I doubted most at a, at a stage in my life was whether God could really truly love me after that. And uh, they're big questions. That everybody experiences. Well, I think everyone does, but I think sometimes people are afraid to acknowledge that question. Uh, if you come from, as I do, an evangelical uh, Christian background, then we're, you can almost feel like you should never ask that question. Because, you know, I've made a statement of faith and I've been born again and that's the deal and now it's done. And I think sometimes we have to push deeper than that and ask a bigger question. In light of my own experience, in light of my own falling short, how does God respond to that? And I think if, we're, if, we, if we don't face that, we can end up like Pharisees where we hide our own sin and judge others. But I think if we let those questions really come at us and sit down in that dark place with God and say, well, God, what do you think? I think we come through to a different experience of his grace and mercy. As the current director for the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem, you see people in all stages of faith, some coming because it's what they have longed to do for a lifetime to come to that place. You must see others who come in thinking, what, what is this place? Will I be able to figure out something about my belief when I go there. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, we get uh, about 260,000 visitors a year, and probably the majority of those are not only Christian, but would define themselves on the evangelical spectrum. But we get many, many groups. I mean, we get a large number of Mormon groups. We get large numbers of mixed Catholic Protestant groups. Increasingly, uh, we're getting uh, people from not just the Western world, um, but also from China, Indonesia, South America. And these people come with totally different experiences of what their Christian faith or their lack of faith has led them to. So we do get many, many people come with big questions. Is God real? What does it mean to me? Does he love me? Does he have a plan for my life? Big questions, and it's a privilege to meet these people. In the course of a week, whether it's Sunday services or Sabbath services or daily observances, what are the things that you use to reconnect with God and to feel like you center yourself the issue of um, personal reading of scriptures and personal quiet times uh, can never be overrated. Um, but in the in the busyness of life, I would admit there are times when I do that more than others. And the irony is, I often don't do it as much when I should do it more. But, you know, under pressure, it can get pushed. And so, I think maintaining a rhythm of prayer and a rhythm of reading scripture. And again, for preachers like myself, an issue is go to the scriptures for yourself. Don't always go to the scriptures for a message for someone else. It's a key issue. Um, living and working where I do, I mean, waking every morning in the gardens of the garden tomb and spending my day, a lot of it in an office in the garden tomb, and then going out and into the garden and hearing the worship all day. 
I mean, it's a tremendous privilege, and it does centre you. You've really got to be pretty dull if you don't tune in. Uh, but I'm pretty dull, and sometimes I can go through a whole day and forget to rejoice in the fact of God's love and mercy. I'm glad you bring that up. I was going to ask how you keep it from being every day when every day you are in a unique place in all the world. It is. I mean, it's not. It's not normal. <laughs> it's not a job that everyone can do, and and I'm, I'm profoundly aware of the privilege. Uh, if I could step out of that and say, you know, my my, my experience before this was was many and varied. I, I, I uh, was planted and pastored a church in a small seaside town in Essex in, in the UK where very few people were, were Christians. I've led a church in London in, in, a, in a city area where it's many people have no interest or even concept of God. And so there have been moments, years, decades of my life where walking the Christian walk has meant being in alien land, alien to the gospel. Uh, at the moment, I have this tremendous privilege of, of working in an environment which is massively weighted towards experiencing God. And so it's a privilege. But the danger there is that it becomes, uh, per se, it becomes part of normal life and you lose sight of the, the awesome privilege of it. I, I try not to lose sight of that. Either back home or here, are there times when you feel like you've had difficulties because you are a believer? I meet people every day now who come from countries where people die for, for their testimony. Parts of India, parts of Africa, China, Indonesia, local people from the nations around us here visit the garden. And these people live with their life on the line. And I've never felt that I've lived with my life on the line. However, what we in the West face is much more insidious. It's living in a culture that frankly dishonors God. And our lives are surrounded by temptation and strings and things that can pull us back into the world. And the lukewarmness that we encounter is a, probably more dangerous to our souls than outright opposition. I've never encountered outright opposition. I've encountered sneering and you know, incredulity, what you believe in God, but that doesn't hurt me physically. It doesn't even hurt me personally. It hurts me that that person can't see beyond their limited vision, but it, it's not suffering. Suffering for the gospel is something different. I wonder, and perhaps this changes from decade to decade or year to year, if you have particular moments or stories in scripture or passages that are touchstones for you, yeah, that's a good question. The stories of Jesus' encounters with actual people is fascinating. And he always seemed, Jesus always seemed to meet the person where they were. And he met them as they were. And it was that encounter where, where a person, whether it was somebody caught in sin or whether it was somebody suffering unjustly or somebody suffering justly, somebody struggling with any area, Jesus would meet them there and he would meet their need. And then he would call them to take a step towards him, having met them. There have been many encounters in my life when I've realized I'm just such a needy person, and I come to the one who can meet my need, but I have to respond right when I do that. He meets my need, but he's not my servant. He is my God. He's my Lord. 
And uh, I was listening to something on YouTube the other day where the preacher said, you know, if Jesus is worth coming to at all, he's worth coming to with all. And that's the challenge. Scriptures that draw me that way, the parable of, of, of the uh, prodigal son, it's powerful in my life. He was a, a lad brought up in a home where he was loved and cherished and his future was secure. He made a bad decision, I mean a sinful wrong decision, walked off into a really dark place and the father let him do that. The father didn't stop him, restrain him, correct him, he let him do that because he had a choice. But when he came back the father's love was overwhelming. I've experienced that in my life. And that's a key thing for me. When I'm in a place of thinking, oh God, I've done it again, whatever it would be, losing my temper, you know, getting fed up, whatever it is, oh God, you love me, I'm coming back. They're powerful verses for me. Maybe a couple questions about belief and passing that on to a new generation. As a father, how do you pass that on where it's not something you could hand someone? And what do you see the new generation, the upcoming generation, doing with their faith these days? It's a good question. Uh, As parents, we have a tremendous privilege and a tremendous opportunity with no guarantees attached. As in the parable of the prodigal son, the father was, in that story, um, representing the perfect father, our father in heaven, who poured himself into his child and his child chose to throw off the, off the traces and go his own way. And as Christian parents, we face that possibility. So as Christian parents, as a father, and again, you know, when we have children, we've never had them before. I was 23 when we had our first child. What did I know about anything? You know? but, and so you start as an absolute learner, and nobody can help you on those first steps. You have to learn. With my children, uh, there came a point when I realized, you know, I have to ask for their forgiveness for the times I've not been what I should be. Repenting and saying sorry to our children, I think, is hugely powerful for them. And it will hopefully enable them to do the same. Because they'll need to. Because they'll need to. They will need all the grace and mercy of God, first of all, to survive my parenthood, and then for their children to survive theirs. So honesty, being honest about the things we struggle with, not putting ourselves in a position of power with our children or with the younger generation, being honest and saying, these are things that troubled me. These may be still things that trouble me. I think is, is honoring to them and honoring to God that we be honest about these things. Um, Loving our children no matter what, but putting things in place that are right and wrong, good and bad, definite boundaries and saying this and no further is very important. Uh, I do worry that that trend uh, may be being backed away from, but I think if I would dare be presumptuous and say to anyone with a young family, you know, draw the lines in the right place. Don't die in a ditch over something that's not important. But if something's really important, say, this is really important. And this is what I believe and this is what this family stands for. How do you feel that the Lord has led you at various points, whether through the Holy Spirit or just through events, influencing decisions? I think I would always start with, with the Bible. I think it's why... We should not only read it, but absorb it, meditate on it, let it become part of how we think. Uh, If we don't get that building block in place, we're always going to struggle with a very subjective approach to hearing God's voice. 
The Bible does give us a touchstone. Uh, secondly, uh, taking the counsel of godly people, people whose lifestyles we respect, who we can see have, have walked with God. Particularly, I look for those who are aware of their own weakness and are honest about it. I don't want to take advice from a Pharisee, even if they're right, <laughs> you know. So I, 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 I look for people who, who walk with God in, in, in their own brokenness and are honest about that. Then there is something called the witness of the Holy Spirit. And it sounds subjective, and it could be subjective, but it's really important. Sometimes we get that sense that this decision would not be a good one. We might not know why. It might, be, it might look scriptural. People might say, yeah, that looks good. But we have to, I think at some stage, if we know the scriptures and we take advice, we have to trust that voice. If it's not about fear, if it's not about being overwhelmed with the challenge, but it's just that voice that says no, or that voice that says yes, it does well to trust that voice, I think, because God has promised he will put his spirit in us. When you have a congregation, you mentioned planting and, and nurturing a new congregation. Are there certain things that have to happen foremost to have a group of believers in Christ that can continue on and succeed and support one another? Again, that's a really good question. Uh, I think that what the, the first church I was involved with planting, and it started in our home and it grew, and we thank God, w one of the early challenges w was finding out what was it really that drew that initial group together if it's simply discontent with where they were and wanting to do something new that's perhaps the most awful reason in the world for planting a congregation you know if you start a congregation with a group of discontented people you'll have a group of discontented people that's just how it is and we learned that pretty early on and did some repenting what eventually fired us was just this overwhelming sense that God loved me enough to seek me and find me and pay the price and bring me home. And now he's given me that opportunity to do that with others. And it was being centered around the grace and mercy and compassion of God. We decided we plant a church for people who don't like church, and there's a lot of them out there. <laughs> they don't want to touch church with a barge pole either because they've never known it or because they have known it. And so uh, we wanted to reach people who don't like church. And God loves those people. And so there were some issues we decided on right up front. Every person we meet is loved by God. There is nothing they can do to stop God loving them, and there's nothing they can do to make him love them more. What they can do is, is accept his love. So the, the congregation came together over that principle. God loves you up front now as you are, and he will change you because he's promised he'll do that. And so it formed around uh, the Father, the Father's heart, the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus, that he is not just our model and our mentor, but our savior and our provider and our healer and our deliverer, and on and on and on. We can never find an answer outside of Jesus because God's whole answer is in him. So we formed around the love of the Father, we formed around the person and mission of Jesus, and we formed around the belief that God will lead us, God will lead us on, and our highest calling is to worship him. I think if a church, if a congregation forms around that, um, then there's a very good chance that they'll take root in Christ and grow. If you don't, forget it. So there was a moment that, that changed my understanding of God and my understanding of me. Again, my background, 
um, evangelical, conservative evangelical, but, but then coming into a sort of charismatic experience and not dropping any of the theology. Um, but I, you know, I was one of those really zealous young men. I was very, very zealous, painfully zealous. Uh, and I, you know, I was going to be that man who walked with God faithfully all of his life. And, you know, we got married. Uh, we, I started a business and then started a church and all this stuff going on in my life. And um, we had house groups almost every evening as a young married couple. We were doing stuff uh, in, in the church and for the kingdom. And I burnt out. Um, yeah, I was zealous, and, and I have no pride in this now because it was, I was missing some key things. But, you know, I would get up every morning and read and pray for an hour and a half before I started my day, and then I'd start my day, and I'd read my Bible, and I'd pray. And I, I, I burnt out. I crashed. And I remember a moment when I just said to God, Oh, God, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't hold on uh, and I expected uh, God to say, well, I'll go find someone else then, you know, who can run the race. And I was just overwhelmed with this incredible sense of God. I don't mean an audible voice, uh, but an incredible sense of God saying into my heart, if you let go of me, I'll never let go of you. If you let go of me, I'll never let go of you. And it, it broke me and mended me, and I still live in that experience of, of breaking and mending, breaking and mending, because we can always find ourselves in that exhausted state again, where we realize we put far too much time into the things of God and not enough time into God. And so I keep finding myself in that place, uh, but I will never again doubt whether he will let go of me, because he told me he wouldn't. But that's really the heart of where I wanted to go. And thank you for, for offering that, that witness. Is there a hymn or two that are favorites or that speak to you? <laughs> At different times of the day, I might give different answers to that one. Um, oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider all the works the hands has made. And then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Now, I met the man who translated that hymn into into English from Russian and it's, it's in the top it's always in the top two or three hymns in, in, certainly in the UK I would suspect probably in the US also it's up there in the top ten uh, Stuart Hine and by the time I met him he was a, a very very old man in a little brethren chapel uh, membership about twelve and uh, he lived that hymn and I, had, I think meeting him Help me to understand the hymn. I mean, the H-Y-M. Yeah. <laughs> Meeting him made me understand him. Uh, and and that, that's, a, that's a powerful song in my life. Um, one of the things that is exciting about now is, is that there are so many, there's some really bad songs written uh, today, but there are some good ones. And, and there are hymns that are for a season, and there have been many times in my life when there's been a hymn for a season that's had a particular impact. Um, shine, Jesus, Shine uh, is another one. Um, Fill the earth with the Father's glory. 
That, that should be the cry of our heart and that hymn has helped me centre back in on that. Sometime. Written by Graham Kendrick, again, whose congregation I was once in and I met him. Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill the world with the Father's glory. The team I work with at the Garden Tomb, we, I constantly repeat this. They may get fed up with me repeating it, but I repeat it often. There are two groups of people who visit the Garden Tomb. There are those who know and love Jesus and the Father. And there are those who would love him if they knew him. Now, I know that some people, having come to know him, will reject him. People do that. It's beyond my understanding. But that's my starting point, and I believe it's true that if people knew him, they'd love him. If one day we will see Jesus, and we will see the Father as he is, and then we will be changed and we will know perfectly, even as we are perfectly known. So we see now shadows of the reality. We see things that, that are glimpses of his glory. Uh, but that, for me, is the purpose of the ministry that I'm called to now. It's to approach everyone I see as somebody who is loved by God, and they either know it or they don't. And my job and the job of the team at the garden is to lead that person just one step further. If it's a Christian, a believer, somebody who knows that, to remind them about it so they can celebrate it. If it's somebody who doesn't yet know him, then trying to reveal something of the heart and the glory of God the Father revealed in Christ Jesus that will not let them escape. God is on their case. They might leave the garden, but he'll follow them out. And in his time, he'll, he'll show his glory. Stephen Bridge, currently the director of the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem. Stephen, thank you. It's an honor to hear from you. It's been my privilege. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll talk about the difference between two separate holy sites, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Garden Tomb. Plus, a panel of listeners discuss some of the ideas presented by our guest. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. In the first half of the show, we heard an interview with Stephen Bridge. He's director of the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem. But there's also a famous church in the old city called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So what's the difference? And is one of them the actual place of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? David Whitchurch recently returned from three years as associate director at the Brigham Young University Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. It seemed like he'd be a good one to ask, since he's lived and taught in the Middle East for years, about these two sites. David, you've been to both of them multiple times, I'm sure. I have, and we take our students to both sites. I wonder if you tell those of us who are sitting at home or listening or in the car or exercising with headphones on, what experience might someone have and see at these places? Wonderful question. Uh, first, it's good to be with you today and enjoy the opportunity to talk about a part of the world that I dearly love and people whom I love. There are two very different experiences. As you may know, I know that you've been over there as well. When you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, for example, you see much more of the Catholic or the Greek Orthodox Armenian type of worship, the experience there. 
it's all under one roof. It's indoors. You see uh, what you might expect with all the accoutrements that come with uh, that type of worship. And you've got, since the fourth century, millennia and a half of faithful individuals coming to that church in particular that they recognize and identify with the death and burial and resurrection of the Savior. So when we read in the New Testament that near to the place of the crucifixion was this tomb, that's actually all encompassed, isn't it? In it this? is now. When it was first identified, it was uh, Constantine's mother who went over there. And the uh, shortly after the talks in what's today Iznik, the Nicene talks, she was uh, asked to go over and identify Christian sites or took it upon herself to do so. And uh, she's identified a number of them, one of which was the site that is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located. So by 325, 326 probably, and for the next decade, they were building a very large basilica church. Over the centuries, that's changed considerably, so uh, what you see today would be considerably different than what was there. And it's now all under a single roof, what we do have. And under that roof, you see the tomb that they identify with the burial of Jesus and resurrection. You'll see the place of Golgotha where he was crucified. You'll see a stone where he was laid and his body prepared for that burial. So all of the sites are just, uh, like you said, uh, under one roof, and uh, literally millions of people go there per year. The devotion is incredible. I've had some wonderful experiences there, both contemplating our Savior and as well as watching people, just watching the joy that they feel, the emotion, the tears as they come there to worship our Savior. And it really is people from every corner of the earth. Every corner of the earth. There are six churches, uh, three dominant churches that have oversight there. People come from literally every corner of the world to worship there and to recognize that our Savior is the Lord. And the similar experience is had at the other site, as different as it is from indoors. And this is a much later discovery. That's correct. This is before the garden tomb had been popularized. It was first discovered in the 1840s by a German scholar, and then by 1860s, 1867, Sir Charles Gordon is the one who begins to popularize the idea that this may be the site that takes hold more on the Protestant side, as close as it is. It's just a couple of blocks from Damascus Gate to the north of the old city. And uh, you walk down a little lane and enter into an area where traffic and noise outside and inside, it's a garden area, open beautiful trees, beautiful plants, garden areas, and a tomb that they identify with the death and resurrection of the Savior. It's a very different feeling when you go there. And like I said, I've had wonderful spiritual experiences in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and I've had similar experiences in the garden tomb. It's There's such a peaceful experience there just because of its quietness and and the beauty of the gardens and the maintenance, the upkeep that they have there. It's a different kind of an experience, but like I say, I love them both. And I've heard people say that for them, the importance was the place or places 
help them to get in touch or make contact with that experience and feel connected to it of, of worshiping and contemplating the, the crucifixion and resurrection. And they felt those feelings were more important than an exact place. Perhaps we'll never know. And I think that's fair. The spirit that you feel when you're there is as important as anything. Like I said, I felt it in both places. And watching people who come to reverence our Savior is certainly evident in both places. And and the garden tomb fits a little bit better with our expectation, I think. So oftentimes you have more of the Protestants identifying with the garden tomb site and the Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, the Orthodox churches are much more in line with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. David Whitchurch, thank you so much. You're welcome. Visiting a holy site or serving there, does that speak to you? Help you connect with the divine? We ask a varied group of people to listen to the interview with Stephen Bridge in the first half of the show and share their thoughts. Cassie Schreiber is the middle child of foreign parents, well-versed in romantic movies and quality love songs. She works as a producer for the show The Appleseed and majors in interdisciplinary humanities. Sean O'Neill is a producer and traffic supervisor here at BYU Broadcasting. Sean and his wife have four teenage daughters. His degree is in Italian. Palakiko Chandler is from Kahalu'u, Hawaii. He is majoring in broadcast journalism and would prefer waves over wintry slopes any day. McKenna Boss is originally from Michigan. She's a senior majoring in public relations and Chinese, graduating in December. She's a producer for The Appleseed and The Matt Townsend Show. As we were listening to what Stephen was saying, one of the themes that really kept sticking out to me was the idea of the companionship that we can each have with God, sort of that idea of him being beside us in different ways. And I really started to identify with when he was talking about being aware of the privilege of sort of being surrounded by God. When he was talking about those different congregations and the locations they'd been in and where God wasn't in his community, like in the same way as he had experienced it, you know, in Israel at the garden tomb. Mm -hmm. Um, And it sort of took me back to when I was in China about five years ago, I had this experience. I'd been living there for a long time, several months at that point, and I got to go on a trip to Xi'an. And while we were there, we took some time to go and start exploring the Muslim quarter. And as I was walking around, I just felt like something was different about it there, and I couldn't really place why. Well, you have Muslims in a Buddhist country. Well, it's, it's, I mean, really, my experience <laughs> at that point had been primarily an atheist country. So then I was walking around and I couldn't figure out why I was just getting this different vibe uh-huh. um, while I was there. And after a while, it just sort of clicked that I was surrounded by faith uh-huh. again. Uh-huh. And so as he was talking about that privilege of being, you know, in this area surrounded by faith after having been in areas where he was surrounded, you know, by a lot of, you know, n- people who didn't have, a, you know, a belief mm-hmm. in God – that, that resonated because I think that is something really powerful in that community when faith is a part of our lives. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, he mentioned kind of that his faith was fostered as a youth through these like church camps. And I have had my own experiences as a youth in church camps. And it's just interesting to see how 
powerful those experiences are in my life to be with other people who are exploring faith and discovering it together and just how important a role community plays in the development of your spirituality. Community plays a big role in it, but I think sacred places also plays a big role in that too. Oh, yeah. He works in the garden tomb. And I try to think about some of the sacred places I've had in my life. I'm from Hawaii, and sometimes when I hike up the mountain and I, I find myself near a waterfall that I've never seen before, and I just feel God, and I feel that He loves me, and that gives me so much energy and so much love and so much appreciation for the world and everything that God has done for me. And it enhances and feeds my faith in him. And I think that is everything what everyone was talking about, like, that, you know, togetherness, community, sacred places. It all helps build up our faith in him. I know his experiences resonated with me because I'm, I'm actually part of the leadership of a local congregation here. Mm. And so him talking about uh, being an example for the congregation – he said, every person we meet is loved by God. He loves you up front as you are now. And I, I just think of that message, and I want to be able to convey that message to to the congregation that, that I'm involved with. That I, I hope I can share that message with them and that they can feel that that message and know that that is – I feel it's a truth. When it comes down to it, we don't necessarily – see each other the way that God sees us. <laughs> True, yes. And we get very, I can get very irritated with people <laughs> and I get very, I'm sometimes short-tempered and I'm like, why don't these people act in a way that I expect them to act or I expect God, the, I expect the way God expects them to act, if that makes sense. And I really enjoyed what he said. He said, he looks for people walking with God in their own brokenness. And that was really profound to me because that's what I try to look – when I try to associate with people, when I try to find friends and people I want to become acquainted with, that's what I look for. I notice their weaknesses and then I see if they're trying their best. Perfection here is not possible. It's not. It's totally something I think you know. we all would hope to be able to get closer to every day. Even then, you know – it's it's a bumpy <laughs> progress. You know, some days are better than others, and you know, you work little by little to get there. That whole idea of being imperfect is the idea that God meets us where we are, mm-hmm. you know, as we are. And it made me think of the idea of God. He comes to us, and obviously, we we have to come to God as well. But there's that idea that He is reaching out, and that you know. F- faith and God can play a part in our lives, no matter what our life is like right now, that he comes to our lives and fills it wherever we are, and then he moves us from there. And you know, he talked about that, the idea that God's love doesn't change, but he changes us. That seems significant. I, I, I really identified all over the place with uh, <laughs> Stephen Bridge because he said he was baptized when he was about 14 or 15. I was baptized when I was a teenager. Um, although he said he had he he was you know he was well into his choice of religion at that 
point in his life, I, I was still kind of on the the following end. I was following my parents into into the religion of our choice, and it was just. But I've 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 since come to grow into that, and and I've now you know being in the leadership of a congregation, just the responsibility is incredible sometimes that you feel. <laughs> in that position and and being able to share the things I would love to be able to show this example to to the folks uh, of my congregation because I feel it's an example that I can that I want to take in and I want to use in my life to become kind of like this gentleman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um just kind of bouncing off of what you said how you'd kind of followed your parents into your religion of choice. I liked what Stephen said about how when you have children, like it's the first time you've had them and you don't <laughs> really know <laughs> how to do about it. And if faith is important to you, I think you obviously want to share that with others, especially your children. And I like how my parents have fostered their own faith as well as my faith by being human, by opening up about their shortcomings or their questions and their life experiences. Like my my father is from Germany and my mother is from Guatemala. And they came to the U.S. Um, as teenagers or young adults and thus have made my upbringing slightly different than my peers, I feel. But that has always made it a great place for like open discussion about our questions and our differences. And I think that's been really important to my development as a person of faith questions, you know, allow us to develop more meaningful and personal relationships with God. I think so often when it comes to faith, you know, he was saying like, oh, I, you know, how, I can't even think to, you know, have these doubts, these questions. But when we take our doubts and really frame them in a way of steps towards building stronger faith, they can become very valuable to us as we allow God to work with us in resolving those questions. Yeah, I think a lot of like the theme of what he touched on is being known and to know um, divinity. And I think for multiple faiths or any sort of spirituality to, to be known so intimately and to know something so great so intimately is um, – a serious form of love like you have to work to get there <laughs> and it's not it's not like an easy skill to maintain or to develop you're listening to a conversation in good faith with a panel of listeners sharing their thoughts after hearing an interview in the first half of today's show with Stephen bridge from the uk currently the director of the garden tomb in jerusalem back to the conversation i think that Everyone has a personal journey towards faith. And he, Stephen Bridge kind of shared he meets all kinds of people that come to the garden. And some are of varying degrees of faith. And some of them have, they want to do this their whole lives. And some of them have serious questions about who they are as, as people on this earth. I think we all do. <laughs> and our connection with divinity. Mm-hmm. And I think that really hit strong with me because I have had those questions pop into my mind over and over again. And sometimes the answer that I got before isn't good enough for the same question that I have now. Mm-hmm. And as I try to increase my faith and as I grow, I realize that I'm, di- I'm a different person. And that's because 
God has made me a different person. He's changed me. He's taken me from where I was and he's been putting me in a different place. And he's allowing me to learn more about the world, about myself and about my place in it and my connection to him. And I think it will continue to go through that path, just like Stephen said, till probably till we die. <laughs> it, it won't end. <laughs> uh, another point that he made, uh, he brought up the prodigal son. Oh. And, and uh, the prodigal son was allowed to leave by his father. That, that yes, God has placed uh, commandments. He's he's you know he's given us uh, requirements in our lives, but we still have the opportunity to choose whether to follow those or to take a, a different path. We have that opportunity, and to me, I, I'm I'm a father just like he is. And you, he talked about raising his kids and helping them to to know of God and the importance. If you feel that's an important thing for your family, that that's something you should share with your kids and be honest about it. I loved that point, that he sh- that you have to be honest with your children about what you believe, because if you're not honest with them, they're, they're going to see right through it really quickly. Mm-hmm. And but you have to be honest with them. You have to set down, you know, set rules in your household as to what's going on. But at the same time, you have to be ready for them to choose a different path. You know, for him, faith is a very conscious decision. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's a passive part of his life, but something you know, he's he decides, you know, I want to be a Christian. He talks about how he's made that decision several times over and over in his life. And I think that that tied in again to like what he was saying about discipleship and how that's responding to God with a yes. And I think that that's such a huge part of any faith that, you know, whatever, you know, creed we may believe in, align with, that it's when we take that action to say yes, to choose to act on faith that that's when we really, you know, feel that close connection mm-hmm. with God. Can I offer a, a different perspective sometimes? I mean, we live in a world where we're so busy. We have so many things fighting for our attention. And God is such a big part of that, that it fights for a lot of our attention, most of it. And Stephen even said it can be spiritually draining, And I felt like I related to that a lot because sometimes I feel that God expects so much from me and that I need to be doing this checklist of things that he expects me to do every single day. And Stephen talked about reading his scriptures and praying for an hour and a half every day before he walked out the door to go to work. And sometimes I don't even have a whole two minutes to brush my teeth in the morning. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I'm cutting it off at a minute and 45 seconds. Uh-huh. <laughs> but what he said was really profound. Are we putting too much things into the things of God and not into God himself? Yeah, I really liked that too, how he talked about being um, like choosing to follow this path and then becoming very zealous, very into it and burning out because of it. And I think that's a challenge um, when we have a fire of faith and it burns and we just want to, you know, light the fires everywhere or just like (laughs) just to have it be a bonfire all the time. But I like how he also talked about how for his daily connection to God, he takes quiet time. And I think 
quiet time is so important for us with all these distractions to um, maybe tame our fire a little bit or, or figure out how to work with it so that if we do share or do go through throughout our lives, it's not, it's not aggressive because I've seen faith become aggressive. And I think we see that and that's not, that's not the heart of really what we want to believe. The low burning embers still have a purpose Mm -hmm. uh, compared to, you know, the raging fire. It's still a beautiful thing. It still gives you warmth. It still cooks the steak really well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, there's something to be said for letting that faith be something that is shaped and controlled, used by God as, you know, an instrument for good in the world as opposed to it turning into this wildfire that's out of control. You know, it's letting it be something that he can, I mean, he can do anything, but, (laughs) you know, making it something that is, you know, humble. I think there's something that that there's a a humility in taking time to step back and to ponder and to not be going at, you know, 110% all the time. Um, Because I think, you know, Faith is a process, it's a progression, and we don't have to be at the end of the race every day. Stephen Bridge kind of talked about um, Jesus Christ and how he meets our needs. And in the Bible, there's a lot about Jesus' ministry to the many, but there's also his ministry to the people, to the one-on-one person. Jesus Christ touched people one by one. And I liked what Stephen said. He said, when he met people, he met their needs and then he invited them to come closer to us. And I feel that as people of faith, that's a really important thing to remember, that we need to focus on our personal ministry with the people around us. We meet people every day and we need to not only figure out what they need from us, what we have to offer them, but then we need to think about it and we need to see how we can help them come close to the deity. Yeah, I think it's interesting even seeing how God does that with us and how he'll use very different means to reach the hearts of different individuals in order to bring them closer to him. One of the things that I always you know, say is that One of the ways God speaks to me is through food, which sounds really silly, (laughs) but I can't count the number of times that I've felt close to God, that I felt God's love because I was having a hard time and all of a sudden I go to the cafeteria and it's got my favorite meal and I just know that God's aware of me because that's what I wanted (laughs) or, you know, things like that when, you know, something else is difficult and I'm wondering, you know, does God love me and you know, a loaf of banana bread shows up on my doorstep. Like, for me, it's not even so much the fact like, oh, somebody cared enough to do an act of service, but so much like, oh, food, yay. (laughs) Um, But I think that, you know, it's significant. Like, God knows that that is a way to, like, let me know that he is there. But I don't know if that's, like, something he uses for everyone. And I think that that's special and that's something that we should apply in our own lives no i think you're you're right god does talk to some people through food just (laughs) a couple just a couple weeks ago me and my cousin we drove down to a national park which is like three hours away and on our way back up she decided to she said i want to drive so i said okay i'm gonna take a nap 
And when I woke up, we went like two hours in the opposite direction of coming home. Oh, no. That's awful. (laughs) It was horrible. And I'm like, okay, we're going to stop and get gas. And so she filled up the gas while I went inside to buy some snacks. And I brought out a bag of salt and vinegar chips. And I was like, no one likes salt and vinegar chips. Only I do. (laughs) And when I brought it out, she started bawling. Because she's like, those are my favorite chips. How did you know? I'm like, I didn't. I just bought it for myself. (laughs) But it was just God telling her that it was okay. You know, we got to spend five extra hours in the car together and talk to each other and get to know. We got to have a one-on-one, some individual time with each other. But for her, she felt so bad for driving the wrong direction. And it was just a message to her that God loved her and that everything was going to be okay. Wow. I think God speaks to people in many different ways. <laughs> Not just food. I've never heard of the food way before, but, you know, <laughs> uh, for me, it's always it, – it's it's like being in the right place mm. or, or being in a place. I know I, uh, you had talked about – Apollo you talked about um, being next to a waterfall or something earlier. I, re- I remember the first time that I felt this way. I was actually driving down the road in my old beat-up VW Bug, um, the first car I ever owned. And I'm driving down the street, which is – it was an expressway. So there weren't any buildings along the sides or anything like that. But I could just see the vastness of the sky and, and it was it just came to me that, wow, this this was created for us so that we could be here and, and see this and, and use it and be able to live here and, and be accommodated. And, and, what, and it, I just had a feeling of love come into me that, that it was just and – and I, I just had to say thank you. And I've had other places that I've gone to. I've been by a stream uh, in a park and, and had the same feeling come to me. So it's, uh, God talks to us in different ways. And I, I also feel that I kind of relate with uh, something that Stephen Bridge said when he talked about being in an alien land. I've been surrounded by folks who could be uh, labeled as non-believers. Uh, and uh, it's a strange feeling, but at the same time, God still wants us to love them. We still we still need to respect them and love them just as much as, as we believe people who might be of a faith. Towards the end, he was talking about hymns that had been significant to him. And mm-hmm. you know, as we've talked about music. different ways that we feel God's love, I think music is one that's common across a lot of different faiths is that the, the role that, that music plays in either worship or just simply connecting with God. Uh, what are, I guess, some of like hymns or songs or I guess just how has music in general played a role in coming closer to God and developing faith for you guys? For me personally, so I grew up in church and I learned a lot of songs for the children <laughs> and I still think of those songs often and they're very simple. They're not like musically very um, impressive, <laughs> but I think they speak of simple truths like being kind to others, or you know, if if God was beside me, would I would I do the things I do? And those have stuck with me. I also am a big fan of just like love songs in general, like, because <laughs> me too. <laughs> I, they make you feel good, and um, I think love, especially like romantic love, it's this idea of like knowing someone, taking the time to know them, even all of their shortcomings and their dark places, and letting yourself be known like that, which I think is a big part of faith and a connection with divinity as well. I really like that. That's not a connection I would have made on my own. So I think that's interesting the way 
God can be in all those different places. Sometimes I feel that music expresses the things that we can't. And there are so many times in my life where I'm doing something and a song comes into my mind because that's how I feel. Um, I think that is a lot of times with my faith that I don't necessarily know how to express it in words or sometimes even in action. But like I know how to express it in song. Yeah, I think for me, music can be a really great source of catharsis. And through that, I use music a lot as a form of prayer. Um, that when sometimes I want to talk to God, but like you're saying, I don't necessarily have the words mm-hmm. or I just need to be able to get something off my chest, I'll oftentimes sing a hymn. Like one of the ones I always go to is Abide With Me to Eventide, um, just because I feel like it does such a good job of you know, pleading for that companionship um, that we can feel. There is one thing I wanted to bring up just before we leave. Uh, I was impressed uh, by his experience of, of talking with God and, and God's response to him when he said, if you let go of me, I will never let go of you. Uh, for me, that is an eternal truth that I don't believe that God will ever let go of any of us because we are his children, because he feels that he needs to hold on to us even if we do uh, take our choices in a different direction that he wants us to go. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our panelists, to Dr. David Whitchurch for his commentary, and especially to Stephen Bridge for his generosity and thoughtfulness in sharing with us. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about the show. Reach out to us anytime via email at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find all of our shows archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon, right here in Good Faith.